Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Ryan Smith. I have the privilege and humble honor of being one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here with us today as we open God's Word together. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 today. And for the past almost year and a half, we've been walking together through the book of Mark. And in a few weeks, we'll pick back up in Mark 14, where where we left off. But in this brief break after the season of Advent, we have the opportunity to address one of the most important doctrines in all of the Scripture. And you may ask, well, what is it? What is that doctrine? Is it, is it the Trinity? Is it predestination? Is it end times eschatology? Is it, did Adam have a belly button? Well, what, what is this great doctrine that we need to spend time unpacking together as a church? Well, the doctrine that we are going to spend the next three weeks as a church looking at from the scriptures is the doctrine of the church. And I, I can understand some of the air being let out of the balloon there. The church? Why do we need to focus on the doctrine of the church? I mean, we are a church having church at the church. Don't we already know all of this? Well, in a way, yes. But, but consider, that, consider that sentence. We are a church having church at the church. In this brief nine-word sentence, the church is defined as a collective group of people and an activity and a particular place. Now, if the church is a collective group of people, what what defines or makes this collective group of people? Can any group of people call themselves a church? Why or why not? What makes Arrow Heights Baptist Church different than any of the other eight to ten churches that you can see driving down this street? Is there a difference between church is? Is that difference important? Is there anything that would disqualify any of those churches from being a biblical church? Or can anyone slap the word church on a group or a building and rightly claim to be what Jesus said in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church? If the church is an activity, then what is that activity? What should or shouldn't the church be doing? And who should be doing it? How do we know if and when it's being done rightly? If the church is a place, then what sort of place does it have to be? I mean, these, these are all important questions, especially considering the fact that the majority of the New Testament is written to churches, talking about relationships in and amongst churches, and as Ephesians 1.22 says, God put all things under his, Jesus, under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Biblically, 
church. Church matters. And church matters to God. And it's because of this that we're going to spend the next three weeks, the next three weeks seeking to understand from the scriptures what is the, what is a, or what is our church. And today we're focusing on the church matters. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says the church? Today we are talking about the universal church. Now, not the universalist church. That's completely different. But the universal church is all people throughout all time, space, and history who have been and are being and will be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's that beautiful picture in Revelation 7, 9. It says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the final and once and for all assembly of all those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's what is meant when the Bible says, The church. Now, next week, we're going to look at the local church matters. That's what the Bible says when it means a church. This is both the why and the how of groups of people rightly coming together this side of heaven, giving themselves a name and calling themselves a church. In the third week, we're going to look at church membership matters. What does it mean to be a member of a local church? Is it even biblical? What do we mean when we say that I am a church member? So that's, that's going to be the next three weeks before we return to Mark. But today, again, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And as we do, let's consider the word church in the scriptures. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it's used about 120 times in the New Testament. And it's really a combination of two words, kaleo, which means to call, and ek, which means out, ek kaleo. kaleo. Now the combination of these, this word in ekklesia means the called out ones, the called out ones. But it's also a word used to describe an assembly or a group of people, that these called out ones are called out together for a united purpose. So the question then is, in the Bible, who are these called out people? Who is calling them out? And why are they being called together? That's actually three questions. But the book of 1 Peter is actually a letter written to a set of churches by the Apostle Peter, likely around 62, 63 AD from Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, one thing he was famous for was his brutal, obsessive, and gruesome persecution of Christians. And so Peter's writing this letter to specific churches representing the much larger church who are starting to ask the question, 
is following Christ, is being a part of the church, worth it? And in this letter, Peter's, Peter's writing to remind the church who they are and who called them. And what they have been called to and why, yes, following Christ as a part of the church is the only journey worth pursuing, no matter what. So let's look at it. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the first thing that Peter wants these people in their local churches as part of the universal church to know is that in Christ, the church has a position or it has a definition. The church is something. And that position, that definition, that something begins with and is centered on Christ. Verse 4, as you come to him, you come to Jesus, who is a living stone. And notice first that Peter emphasizes that Christ is a living stone. The church is not just based on a historical guru or a great leader or a foundational set of morals or ideas. Though no, our God is alive, now he is living. Our Savior, who died to rescue and ransom his people, has also been raised from the dead and now sits on the throne of God. And this death... The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that satisfied the sin debt penalty that we owed creates a delineation between those who are a part of the church and those who are not. The cross of Christ is the dividing line. Now verse 4, Jesus, the living stone, is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Jesus, the Christ, the rescuer, is God himself who promised to rescue and redeem his people who had turned their backs on him and set themselves as his enemies beginning with persons 1 and 2 in Genesis 3. And from then on, the Bible says all of us are born behind enemy lines. 
set by nature to pursue a kingdom of self in place of the true kingdom of God. We are individually and collectively dead to the things of God. Yet this living stone, what Peter describes from the scriptures, citing Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14, is the one that the builders rejected who has become the cornerstone of something. Now, the cornerstone was the most important stone for both the architect and the builder in any building project. Because as the first stone set in place, the cornerstone had to be large, and it had to be very meticulously cut and square and true. Since the angles of every wall and the level of the entire foundation would depend on this one stone. So in prophecy of the Christ, of the rescuer, Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. The New American Standard translates it, will not be disturbed. They'll be set. And we see in God's word that his people rejected Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and sought to build their lives according to other means or other standards. But, as Peter points out, Psalm 118.22, the stone that those builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whether people believed or trusted in Jesus or not, God says he is the cornerstone of a new reality. Isaiah 8.14, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, So this Christ, this cornerstone, will be either a sanctuary of refuge or a stumbling block. As Peter states, this is the dividing line. Jesus is either your sanctuary, your place of refuge and trust, or he is your stumbling block. The snare whom you will reject while seeking your own path with dire eternal consequences. This Jesus, the Christ, God in the flesh, is the living stone, the cornerstone, chosen and precious in the sight of God. Okay, now in addressing the church, Peter says, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. Okay, so here we see the essence of what the position or the definition of the universal church is. And that's that the church is also a group of living stones who are now alive by the power and in the likeness of Christ, the true and original living stone. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the definition of the church stems solely from the work of God in Christ. And because Christ is the living stone, the church now is an assembly of living stones. And also, as Christ was, verse 4, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, the church, likewise as living stones, will be rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. Now, what's happening to these living stones? What is Jesus, the Christ, the cornerstone of? Well, verse 4, as you come to him, verse 5, you are being built up. As you come to him, you're being built up. So the church, as a collection of living stones, is being built into a structure of those who are surrendered to Christ and come to trust and follow him. Okay, now this is important. We are not building the structure. We are not setting ourselves as the cornerstones of our own individual structures. God is building a structure. God is gathering individual stones for a purpose with Christ as the cornerstone. The question that must be asked and often is not is what kind of structure is being built? What is the church? Well, Mark Dever and Paul Alexander in their book, How to Build a Healthy Church, I think are very helpful here. They say, a church is not a Fortune 500 company. It's not simply another nonprofit organization. Nor is it a social club. In fact, a healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. Temporally, a church is a spiritually heavy thing to build, and it is designed for heavy relational use. It requires the strongest materials, and those materials must be placed in the correct load-bearing positions specified on the biblical blueprint so that structural integrity is built in. No matter how beautiful the facade, our structure will crumble if we build on a sandy foundation or with shoddy materials. Okay, now, I, I love that. A healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. What we must use Therefore, as load-bearing definitions for the church and how it functions must be based solely on God's word or they will fail. That also means that our measure or plumb line of success as a church must also be based on God's word or we will fail. You know, the sad and difficult truth is that we can build a structure, a church, 
using very worldly methods and measure it by very worldly standards and can really succeed at both. And it can look and smell really churchy. We can build a church that looks and functions like a Fortune 500 company. Big, resourceful, cutting edge, really moral and really busy. But if we aren't defined by God's biblical morality, doing God's biblically specified work with God's biblically specified structure, then it's a failure. What then is God building with his living stones based on and built off of Jesus, the cornerstone? Well, first in verse 5, God is building a spiritual house. Now, what is a spiritual house? Well, in this respect, Peter is referring to the temple. The temple in Old Testament Judaism was the place where God willingly dwelled as affirmation of his presence and activity among his people. It was where he communicated with his people, where he received their gifts and sacrifices. It was a a holy, a special, a set-aside place of prayer. Now, it wasn't the stones or the materials of the temple that made it special. It was God's presence and use of those materials that gave it its identity and that made it holy and set it apart like no other structure on earth. Okay, So just like God had his people build a physical structure for his presence and function and glory, in Christ, God is building a spiritual structure for his presence and function and glory. Peter is saying that the universal church, all Christians, are now the temple of God. The second, God is also making a holy priesthood. Because the temple was the place where the, the called out and the cleansed, the holy priests performed their God-specified activities on behalf of the people. And primarily, their work involved offering sacrifices to God. I know this may seem weird to us. We have to remember, however, that sacrifices in the Old Testament were not only a means of atonement for sin, kind of what we often think of as sacrifices, but they were just as much expressions of thanksgiving or of joy or of communion with God. Now today we don't offer physical sacrifices because Christ has become the final physical sacrifice on our behalf. But Peter says that the church as a holy priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices. what, What does that mean? Well, let's look at how this is used and how it is described in Scripture. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13.15-16 says, Through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God 
that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to, to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And Paul in Philippians 2.17 said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So the church then, offering spiritual sacrifices to God as a holy priesthood in the spiritual living stone structure of the church, means... Romans 12, giving God our bodies. It means Hebrews 13, acknowledging God for who he is. It means praising him. It means doing the right things and sharing generously with others. And ultimately, like Paul in Philippians 2, it means giving every single part of our lives and ourselves over to God for his glory and his purposes and helping others to do the same. Now, do we do that perfectly? Not this side of heaven. But remember, as Peter says, this happens more and more as we come to him. So as we are sanctified or changed by the Holy Spirit and shaped more and more to look like Christ, then we function more and more in our role as his priests and in his temple. So then are all people a part of this structure? Well, no. Peter signifies that there is a difference between those who are a part of this spiritual structure this holy priesthood, and those who are not. And the dividing line, the distinguishing mark, again, verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. So belief then, or trust, this giving over of ourselves to God and his ways is the marker of those who are a part of this reality of the church. And how can we tell the difference between those who believe and those who don't? Well, verse 8, they disobey the word. So those who look upon Christ, the living stone, and then pass over him as unfit for the task of building the kingdom that they're trying to build, are not a part of what God is building. They're still lost in their sin. Building the kingdom of self. Jesus Christ is not their cornerstone. So belief and trust in God, marked by obedience to his word, displayed by the fruits of the spirit, this belief and trust in God is the defining identifier of the people of God, the church. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. So Peter has described what the church is. Now he's going to describe who the church is. And the first thing that he says is that the church is a chosen race. Okay, now let's be very, very clear here. This word race is not the Greek ethne, which describes a particular ethnic group of people. The word race here is the word gene, which describes a family. It's generations of people. We are a chosen family. We see this in Romans 9, 7 through 8. It says it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So our identity as a people means we are a faith family, not a physical family. And though members of our physical family may be a part of our faith family, and praise God, we do not become a part of the church simply by being born into it. Faith in God defines our family and includes every different ethne, every different ethnicity. As Revelation 7, 9 shows, people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. The church is our true family in ways our physical family can never be. We are blood relatives through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. The second, Peter says, the church is a royal priesthood. The priests in the Bible were those who had the right of direct access to God. And here, Peter says that those in the church are a part of a royal priesthood, which is interesting. Because while he already said that we are a holy priesthood, that we serve in the household of our God, we are also a royal priesthood, meaning we serve in the household of our king. So just as we serve God religiously, we serve God socially. And civilly, we serve both our God and our King. He's sovereign not only over our spiritual lives, but every aspect of our lives. As we say here at the end of our services at Arrow Heights, Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we go and serve him as such. Also, Since we are a part of God's priesthood in Christ, we need no other priest between us and God. As a royal priesthood, we have direct access to the king. Peter says also the church is a holy nation. And just as God called out the nation of Israel to be established as his people in covenant relationship with him, so now the church is a holy nation. A people called out to be in covenant relationship with God through the covenant that is in Christ's death. But fourth, the church is a people for God's own possession. God owns us. We are his. We belong to him. Isn't that good news? Psalm 100 
says, know that the Lord, he is God. And it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now this is important. The church belongs to God. But it isn't because God was picking an all-star team. Okay, we do not belong to God because we met some mark or achieved some kind of status. God's love for us is not based on our loveliness, but upon God's grace to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. A church, so, so biblically, to say I am a part of God's church is to say I, in and of myself, am a fool. I am weak. I am low and despised. Whatever it is, I am not it. But look at this great God who takes people like me and makes them his children, his chosen family, a people for his own possession. You know, in Christ, I have a family and a role and a responsibility and a community that God has called me to for his glory, to show what he can do with people like me. Being a chosen people is not an indication of deserved privilege, but an enlistment in faithful service that we perform with sacrificial joy because of who it is that we get to serve. Now finally, Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, now that, that is a very important that. The church, this spiritual structure, this assembly of living stones, does not exist for itself, but is called out for a purpose. The church has a reason. And what is that reason? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the reason that God is saving a people for himself. 
That is the reason that this spiritual structure of the church exists. If you have been raised to new life in Christ, that is the reason that you exist. We exist to proclaim the character and the goodness, the excellency of God who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into his kingdom of light. We live for the story of the gospel. And as Peter says, echoing God's words in the book of Hosea, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So friend, when Christ saves you, you become a part of the universal church. The people, the family of God. However, our relationship with the church doesn't end there. And next week we'll see how and why God in his blueprint for the church has given us the gift of local churches. But today, let us respond by considering the question, am I a part of the universal church? Have I been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? How, how do I know? Well, I think from this text, there's a couple of ways we can look at this. First is... Jesus Christ, as explained in his word, a cornerstone for your life? Or do you keep running into him and his way as a stumbling block? Are you surrendering to Jesus as Lord of your life? Or do you find areas of your life where you are habitually and knowingly seeking to diverge from him? Are you part of his structure or are you trying to build your own? But next, do you delight to declare the excellencies of God? If not, it may be because you are still in darkness in relation to who God actually is and what he has done on your behalf. And if so, I invite you today if you know that you are not a part of the family of God, not a living stone being built up into the household of God, that you do what Peter says in verse 4 and come to Jesus. Surrender to him. Because your purpose, your restoration, your family and your life are all in Jesus Christ alone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of his church. And today he invites you to be a part. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you 
for the truths in your word. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you died, God, that we may come to you, but that we may be united with you in this family, this bride of yours that we read about in Revelation. This spiritual structure, God, who for whatever reason you choose to use, you choose to delight in, you choose to direct, you choose to discipline. God, we pray that you would make and shape Arrow Heights Baptist Church to be a local church that reflects your glory, that reflects the beauty and the universality of the universal church, that loves and trusts and follows you, that is evident in our deeds and our actions and our words and our praise, that we belong to you. God, that we would be active in pouring out the spiritual sacrifice of giving of ourselves so that others may also be a part of this kingdom for your glory and for your good and through only what you have done on our behalf. God, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.